Good morning. Merry Christmas. I like this kind of call and response. We can do this all morning. Um, it is, if you have not noticed, two days before the big day. I know that we have got a ton of people traveling for the holidays. Our thoughts and prayers are with them that they might have a joyous and peaceful Christmas. I've also noticed this morning that there are several people that have traveled here to see family. I've seen several new faces. If you're new with us this morning, my name is David Hanna. For the last year and a half, I have had the honor of being the pastor of this local expression of the body of Christ known as the church at Lachlan Springs. Prior to that, my family spent nine-ish years Uh, serving on the mission field, working with university students in Bologna, Italy. During our time in Italy, if if there was one thing that consistently drove me crazy, it's every time somebody would find out where we were, where we were living, where we were serving, and they would look at us and say, oh man, you are so lucky. I would love to be in Italy. You know, six years ago, I spent a semester abroad in Florence, and it was magical, and the pasta, and the, and, and the pace of life, and oh, the Italians are so loving and warm and open, and I would just, I would love to be as lucky as you and live in Italy, and it drove me insane. Um, partially, frankly, in a, in a moment of transparency with you, my confession is, partially because I... I wanted people to know that I was suffering for the Lord, right? I didn't want people to think that, yeah, I was just on a constant vacation. Um, And there seems to be, and that is a confession, that's a horrible darkness in my soul, that's my my humanity coming out, but there seems to be kind of this, this idea that when you live in Italy, your days are spent on your balcony, you know, eating a big bowl of spaghetti and meatballs and sipping on red wine while a gondola floats underneath you and you know the Roman Colosseum is in the background and there's the hills and a vineyard over here on this side and 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 that's not the reality of life in Italy if we sit down and think about it I think most people would recognize that that living in a place and visiting a place are two entirely different things and and there are many aspects of life in Italy that are difficult. Here in the last 20 years, the Italian economy has just completely tanked, affecting the country as a whole, but specifically the youth in Italy, this this generation that we were working with as university students. Uh, The youth unemployment rate, 18 to 35 at the time, was well over 50%. There was this recognition amongst that generation that if your family doesn't own a business, you have very little professional prospects once you get out of college. Most Italian youths went one of two ways. Either they recognized a lack of future in their own country and they scratched and clawed and desperately tried to get out and and find a way to to Germany or England or America to get an education or find a job because, because that's what they thought would give them a future. Or they would go the exact opposite direction. 
come, become completely apathetic, sit around in, in a hopelessness, a recognition that there was nothing for them. This is the generation of Italians that we were serving. And as we got to know them, as we spoke with them, as we began to love them as best we could, one word above all others drew them to our living room, and that word was hope. It was something they had never experienced in their life. It was something they so desperately desired, but they did not know where to find it. And suddenly, there was this family that was telling them, come to us and let us teach you about hope. As we continue in our Advent series this morning, we're doing our best to reclaim this season. This time that... The movies tell us should be so wonderful and joyous, but life uses to remind us of so many things that are missing in our lives. The chaos that is constantly spinning around us, the anxiety, the pressures. During our Advent series, we're we're reclaiming this season as we anticipate the arrival, which is what Advent means, the arrival of the Christ child and all of the incredible gifts that come with Jesus, that through Jesus we can know stability, through Jesus we can know true contentment, we can know real confidence, and through Jesus we can know hope a real, everlasting, eternal, living hope. This morning, as we explore our access to this true, persistent, eternal hope, I want to concentrate on a passage in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you want to flip in your Bibles, 1 Peter is a small letter, five chapters, almost all the way to the end. As you arrive there in your Bibles this morning, would you stand with me as I read from God's Word, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be reading verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living Hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed to you in the last time. You rejoice in this even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. God, we are humbled and amazed by your presence with us in this room this morning. We are grateful beyond words that in your son, Jesus Christ, we have a true living hope. And it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. Y'all can be seated. First Peter, written, not surprisingly, by Peter. Like the Peter, that Peter, Peter the disciple, Peter the apostle, Peter the rock upon which Jesus said he would build his church. Peter wrote this letter 30-ish years after the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wrote this letter to mainly exiled Gentile believers throughout the Roman Empire. And he wrote it at an incredibly difficult time for believers. Nero, the infamous Nero, was the emperor of Rome at the time. And during his reign, persecution of Christians was becoming more and more common and more and more brutal. Famously, Nero set fire to Rome And as the Roman citizens got frustrated with him, he blamed it on the Christians. Uh, It's things like this that he did time and time and time again. And, And it's into that context that Peter wrote this letter. This growing persecution of the believers. And the believers that were facing this persecution and were recognizing that it is going to get much, much worse before it gets any better, were facing a very real, very brutal, very physical, almost unspeakable persecution. This was not persecution that said, you know, they're taking prayer out of schools. This was not persecution that said, uh, oh my goodness, they're going to start selling wine in grocery stores on Sundays. This was terrifying, very real persecution. And as Peter writes this letter into that context, he starts by reminding these believers that there is hope. In the middle of all of this, in the future that you are undoubtedly facing, there is hope. Hope. Now that word hope brings, brings with it a lot of baggage, a lot of confusion. We use it in several different ways. There are kind of three main ways that, that we would commonly use hope in the modern English language. Uh, there's a simple desire for something good in the future. You know, I, I hope that the Titans make the playoffs, right, Jacob? Like, that's my hope. My hope is this desire for something good in the future. We can use the word hope to to describe the thing that we are desiring. Our hope is that Marcus Mariota plays next week. Like, that's my hope, is that Mariota's going to play next week. We can use hope to describe the, the reason 
that that thing we're desiring may come true. A Steelers loss this afternoon is our only hope, right? Thank you, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're our only hope. It's, it's how these things, the method by which these things may come to pass. You see, this common usage of the word hope doesn't really accurately describe a, a biblical hope, this scriptural hope, this hope that, that Peter is talking about in his letter. In fact, the most important feature of a biblical hope isn't present in any of these ordinary uses of the word hope. In fact, biblical hope in many ways is almost the polar opposite of the way we ordinarily use the word hope. Now, it's not opposite in that uh, we're no longer desiring for something good. That is, that is contained in this, in this biblical hope, this scriptural hope. But it's opposite in the sense that all of those common uses of hope come with some level of uncertainty. Jacob Bell hopes the Titans make the playoffs. He cannot guarantee it. He has no idea whether it's going to happen or not. He can't even affect whether it happens or not. It's just this desire for something that may or may not happen. There's a level of uncertainty. But a biblical hope, the hope that Peter is talking about, is founded on a moral certainty, this confident expectation that that thing desired, that thing promised will come to pass. There is a certainty involved. In fact, Paul in the fifth chapter of Romans describes this hope as as a hope that will not disappoint. There is a certainty to it that isn't included in our modern usage of the word hope. And this is where Peter starts his letter. As he's speaking to these exiles, these followers of Christ that are experiencing persecutions and staring down the barrel of progressively worse and more brutal persecutions, he starts by reminding them of this eternal, real Hope that will not disappoint. If you look back with me at First Peter chapter 1, there in verse 4, talking about this hope, he describes what the hope is, and he calls it an inheritance. And this inheritance in verses 5 and verse 9, he tells us is the salvation, the very salvation of our souls. Our hope is established and founded in an eternal salvation that he then describes as imperishable, undefiled, unfading, assured through our faith in Jesus Christ, assured through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not a hope in things that are uncertain. It's not a hope that good things might happen. It's not a hope in cotton candies and rainbows and unicorns. It is a very real, very true, assured, imperishable hope in the salvation of our souls and eternal life. And why is this hope so important? 
Well, he tells us in verses 6 through 9 that in the midst of their trials, in the midst of this coming persecution, in the midst of suffering, it is this hope that will bring us joy. If, if we've defined what hope is, it's also important at this point to define what hope is not. And the main thing we need to understand this morning is that hope is not happiness, right? Hope does not mean, this eternal assured hope does not mean that, that suffering isn't going to happen. But trials aren't going to happen. If anyone tells you anything in this book promises a life without suffering, run screaming. It actually promises just the opposite. But what it also promises is that with this hope, there can be this underlying joy in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of the persecution. As the floodwaters rise, and make no mistake, the floodwaters will rise. We are anchored by our hope established in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of you that are in this room right now And you've heard everything I've said, and you don't buy a word of it. You're thinking right now, all right, Hannah, I get it. I've heard it before. I've been in church my entire life. I don't feel it. Never felt it. My parents are sick. My marriage is failing. I just lost my job. I don't feel this hope that you're telling me about. My daughter, Ruby Love, asked for a cat for about a year. About six weeks ago, Professor Minerva McGonigal, known around our house as many, arrived She and Ruby Love, from the very first moment, were soulmates. That was six weeks ago. This week on Tuesday, we found out from the vet that Minnie may have a rare genetic mutation that is not compatible with life. Potentially terminally ill kitten story. Perfect for the Christmas season, right? So, on Tuesday, as a dad, I didn't know what to do with my 10-year-old daughter that is in a puddle. And I thought, oh man, what a a great time if this is ever going to happen the week I'm preaching on hope is the perfect time for this to happen because I, I can now preach that very sermon to my daughter. And I sat in the car and I told her about hope. 
She said, Daddy, I, I don't want to hear about hope right now. I don't feel it. How many of you are in that place? How many of you read Peter's words? You hear Paul talk about a hope that does not disappoint and you say, it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't want to hear about it right now. Richard Sibbs was a 17th century Puritan preacher in Cambridge. And he wrote an entire book, 175 pages, on one verse of the Bible, Psalm 42.5. Psalm 42.5 says this. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. Richard Sibbs titled his words, The Soul's Conflict with Itself. How many of us identify with that psalmist? How many of us identify with our soul's conflict with itself? We know that there's a hope, but we still feel so dejected. Why, God? Do I not feel it? The psalmist goes on in that verse to say, put your hope in God. I will still praise him. You see, the psalmist is preaching this sermon to himself. Here's the reality, guys. Hoping in God, a real hope that does not disappoint, doesn't come naturally for sinners like you and like me. It's something that we must continually preach to ourselves, reminding ourselves of where our hope should be. In Jesus Christ, in things eternal, rather than just the things of our physical world. Now, if you look back at Peter's words in this first chapter as as he is introducing his letter to these exiles that are being persecuted, that are facing these trials and this suffering, he doesn't just remind them of hope. Look back with me at verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Living hope. What does that mean? Has anybody ever heard of Viktor Frankl? Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychotherapist who was put into concentration camps in Auschwitz in World War II. I figured the only way to really build on a terminally ill kitten story was to go directly to the concentration camps in World War II. 
as a scientist, as a doctor, despite the suffering and pain, unspeakable tortures that were around him every day, he couldn't turn his brain off. He was fascinated by the way those around him responded to this suffering. He spent his entire time there observing his fellow prisoners, eventually recording those observations in a book titled Man's Search for Meaning. The book is 60 years old. You can still find it in almost any bookstore you go to. It is amazing. It is fascinating. And what Frankel realized was there were basically four different ways that people would respond to suffering. He was in this place where, where your very souls were ripped open and laid bare and you could see the way people were put together and they responded in four ways. The first was he recognized people, sometimes dear friends, kind and gentle, that just became brutal. Going full into survival mode, doing whatever it took to just survive that next minute. Pretty much losing all humanity, reverting to animalistic instincts. The second group of people that he observed were those that gave up. Lost hope altogether. He observed that that oftentimes... This would come on suddenly. The symptoms would reveal themselves one morning when a person just suddenly didn't get out of their bunk. They didn't dress. They didn't go to the lineup or the inspection. And no level of threats or torture changed their outlook because they just gave up. Death soon followed. There was a third category. And this third category was, was a group of people that, that were able to maintain some sense of hope. And what they kept telling themselves was, if I can just survive this, if I can just get out of here, then I can reclaim my old life. Things can go back to the way they were. I can regain my my health and my family, professional achievements and status and fortune and position in society. And what Frankel observed with this group was if they did survive, once they got out, once they were liberated, they found that life was never the same. It didn't look like it looked in their hopes and in their dreams. And often this group spiraled into a deep and crippling depression. Often not surviving long after their liberation. Frankel observed a fourth group. A small group. And this group was, was somehow able to maintain their, their full inner liberty. They were somehow able to obtain an inner strength 
that was above their outward physical fate. And as he observed and as he studied and as he interviewed this group, what he found was this group had placed their hope in something eternal, something bigger than themselves. Prisoners would often come to Viktor Frankl and say, Doctor, how can I possibly survive this intact? And he would tell them time and time again. What I have learned is that life only has meaning if we have a hope that suffering and even death cannot destroy. You see, you see Viktor Frankl was telling his fellow prisoners exactly what Peter was telling these exiled, persecuted followers of Christ exactly what Peter is telling us today, which is that, that the foundation of our personality, our inner strength, our buoyancy in life is our hope, that thing that we are living for. And the ultimate hope of our hearts, our future hope, determines how we deal with our now. You see, if, if we make our ultimate hope any finite object, when we make our ultimate hope health or family or achievement or fortune or, or position or happiness or relationships, none of those are bad things. Those are all good things, but when that is our hope, when that is our foundation, when that is the thing that we live for, what is suffering but the stripping away of those things in our life? So if that's our rock and our foundation, when those floodwaters rise and those things are stripped away, what happens? We become cynical. We become brutal, losing our humanity. We become hopeless, giving up. We become depressed as the natural order of life strips away the things that we have placed our hopes and dreams on. But Peter, in this letter, reminds us of the biblical, eternal, certain hope. The hope that comes only through Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews in, in chapter 6, verse 19, talks about the living hope that Christians have in Jesus and that that is the very anchor to our souls. Jesus is alive and our hope lives in him, a living hope that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading. 
This morning, many of you are, are actually in a great place in life. Good job. Family's going well. It's the holiday season. We celebrate that with you. We're excited for you in that place. There are others this morning that have no idea what that feels like. If you arrived in this place this morning running on fumes, completely empty, Just praying you can get to tomorrow, and tomorrow you're going to pray you can get to the next day. If your marriage is failing, there is a living hope. If you feel condemned and unworthy because you just can't stop that thing. There is a living hope. If you're isolated, if you're alone, there is a living hope. Guys, I have good news. 2,000 years ago, your God, the creator of the universe, in whose image you were made, sent his son who was born in a manger in Bethlehem. And the best news is it didn't end there. 33 years later, he died for me and for you, paying the price of our sins on a cross. And the even better news is it didn't end there either. Because three days after that, he defeated death and he lives today. And in him, you have access to a real, living, undefiled, imperishable, eternal Would you pray with me this morning? God, we are unworthy. But despite that, you sent us the greatest gift of all time. And here we stand on December 23rd in the middle of a season that we get to celebrate, reminded every day of that gift of your son, that living hope. It is in his name that we pray this morning. Amen.